I don't think it's um, necessarily uh, <coughs> wise to to try to analyze our experience in the light of a certain model or concept, even impermanence, um, suffering or not self. But rather, it's it's almost like um, if there's enough space around an experience, say it's a knee pain, so that we're not immediately upon perceiving the pain, wishing it to go away, defining ourselves as bad meditators, because there should no longer be pain, comparing ourselves to everyone else in the room who undoubtedly are all sitting here in perfect bliss while we're enduring this knee pain. You know, if we're not adding all of that, then within that space, we can come close to that experience and intuitively see it in the light of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. It's not a contrived effort to see it in that light. It really is what arises when there's enough space, when we're not jumping in with all of the conclusions and judgments and um, elaborations and future projections and all of that. Sometimes when we talk about seeing on that level, it really is a reminder that we know those truths. You know, they're not so very far, and we know them to one degree or another. But because we are so caught up in those reactions, we forget. And so it's not reaching out for a level of insight that is somewhere out there in the future, but it's rather remembering in a moment what what we actually know. The difficulty we often have is that we take things so personally. And in practice, very often, these truths will come up because that is what is playing itself out, is an ever-deepening recognition and remembering of these truths. But it doesn't happen in an impersonal, seeming way. So, for example... You know, we may be entering a period of practice where the truth of suffering is getting very strong. And that is quite good. You know, that's, that's a deep and genuine opening to different levels and manifestations of that truth. It doesn't come to us necessarily as, as a cognitive sign, like, oh, isn't this interesting? This is the truth of suffering. Usually it comes as a story. I'm not doing very well. Everyone here is doing much better. My body hurts. I'm lonely. I'm afraid. All of these are really manifestations of this universal law of unsatisfactoriness or suffering. It takes tremendous presence and compassion and detachment, having all of that happen, to see it as the law of suffering. This is it. This is what we share. This isn't, you know, my personal um, problem that shouldn't be here right now, that's keeping me from having a good retreat. This is the law of suffering. And the same with impermanence. When things start passing, you know, people say, I can't hold on to anything. And that's good to see that. That's not bad, you know, that that's happening. But we tend to take it as, you know, something's gone wrong in my practice, you know, my mindfulness seems to be coming and going. 
or you know that that is our very common habit or with anatta it's most pragmatic access probably for most people is to see that things are ungovernable that there doesn't seem to be a little being inside this body that can say okay no more pain you know or a being inside the mind which can say you know from now on for the rest of the retreat there will be only loving kindness in my mind that doesn't seem to be the case and so we use that uncontrollable nature to point to the essenceless nature you know so people see we all see the uncontrollable nature of things but mostly we don't sit down and say oh wonderful you know this is this is the doorway to liberation that's known as anatta you know mostly we say my practice was better yesterday than it is today something's gone wrong i don't know what i did wrong i should have been you know i shouldn't have taken that walk or i shouldn't have whatever it is so it's all kind of a movement away from identifying with those reactions and those judgments towards seeing that all of these experiences are showing us these truths in every moment if we can actually let go of those reactions Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so ineffectual. <laughs> it kind of wears away, you know, until you know, I think it, it is our fondest belief that there is a self that can control and it's it's really seeing that things are functioning according to laws that they are um combinations of conditions coming together and coming apart so one of the things we really say is um try to pay attention to intention even if it's uh guided or streamlined to watching the intention before major movements because in watching intention it's a great way of seeing the relationship or the link between the body and the mind you know and you just see that that there is this cause and effect relationship this conditionality that keeps this process going you know you're sitting down you have a terrible pain uh it feels quite bad based on that pain this intention arises to move based on the intention a movement happens based on the movement there's a new sensation there's a feeling of relief based on that you know and you just kind of watch the process often enough and it becomes quite clear that it's not haphazard and crazy it's quite conditioned in a lawful way but it is only conditions coming together that it's not referring back to anybody and so really just the more you look at that um the clearer it becomes that there's no there's no solid thing lurking back there quietly pulling the strings yeah i'm trying to put together this idea of there's no self in control what joseph was talking about last night we talked about the law the law of karma it's personal responsibility mm-hmm. <laughs> 
When I was in uh, college, <coughs> I took a class in Asian philosophy and studied Buddhism, and our um, midterm question was a quotation from, from the Buddha in which he said, there is karma, but no one to experience it. <laughs> so, and I thought I, I had an understanding of it at the time. Um, I mean, that is kind of the key question uh, phrased one way or another. It's how does this relative world as we see it and know it connect to how is it actually one with the absolute truth, if that is the absolute truth, that there is no one here, there's no solid, separate self experiencing it. Again, you know, it's, it's not that um, saying that there is a process rather than a self, rather than a solid entity, that doesn't mean that it's chaos, you know, and that there's not a, a lawful progression of things. You know, uh, as the Buddha taught karma, he talked about intention, saying that the function of intention, in a way, is to plant a karmic seed, which will, which will ripen in, in its own time to bear a certain kind of fruit. That doesn't imply a thing or a being. Um, but it's that juxtaposition of the world as we see it and as we know it, and the impersonality of it as is taught, you know, and perhaps experienced to be true, is a very fascinating question. You know, that's the whole point, is that one doesn't negate the other, but that they, they are joint manifestations of the truth, seen from different angles or seen on different levels. I wouldn't think about this all too much. <laughs> but rather, um, particularly in terms of karma, since even that one law, the Buddha said, could not be understood intellectually or uh, in a conceptual framework. We could never fully understand it because it's not as simple as A equals B you know, that this happened, you know, ten lifetimes ago, and therefore this is this way. It's a very complex and, and rich unfolding. You know, we plant a seed, but the field we planted in makes a difference too, you know, and then the weather, and then, you know, there's all of these conditions that are, um, it's quite intricate. Uh, the best that we can really do, I believe, is is to look honestly and fearlessly at our experience to see what happens when we have an intention in the mind. What is the vibrational tone almost of that intention? You know, what does it feel like when we're filled with hatred and we're about to, you know, kill a bug or something like that? What does that feel like? Because that feeling is probably a clue as to the quality of the seed that's getting planted. And the seed is going to have certainly some effect on the nature of the fruit. And so um, we can get that, that sense quite personally and intuitively of that linkage, you know, and see how these forces get planted, they get reinforced, they come back. You know, and, and so it's, it's a level of understanding rather than 
uh, level of um, intellectual knowing. I mean, when I wrote that midterm exam, I left quite confident that I really understood the law of karma. You know, and within six months, I was in India, and I realized that I didn't understand the law of karma. <laughs> okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. The question is about kama, the endless pit of confusion, <laughs> and about the difference in kama resultant between killing a chicken for something to eat and killing a chicken for proof of your ability to do it or a requirement or something. I think that uh, in any action, there are, uh, we, we go through a thought process to come up with the decision to do something. And we can say that that thought process is a justification, a rationalization, a reason for speaking and acting the way we do. But when the act itself comes, there is a momentary intention at that point. And it may or may not have anything to do with the reason or the rationalization for doing it. And so in the act of, and I don't know what Joseph went through, but I can only imagine that when you're holding a chicken and you've got the axe, that there's something else there that doesn't have much to do with, uh, I'm doing this for Peace Corps requirement. It's got other, other things going on there. And all we can do is look very closely to see what's really happening in the actual moment of doing something. And kind of put aside all of our reasons and justifications for doing it that precede it. And then we get closer to the actual kama of that event. And what the resultant kama would be no idea. But they say there are infinite varieties of subtleties in kama. And the Buddha said it's one of the four topics that will drive you crazy. <laughs> so be careful about getting too involved in why and what and what if and da-da-da-da-da. Because it's one of those things that the Buddha said you can't figure out. And it just kind of make your head spin right off your shoulders. Yes. In that, um, there are three phrases there. Page. Top of page three. Uh, Dukkha muchantu, may they be free from suffering, is actually the, the pervasion for doing karuna or compassionate meditation. 
may they have safety and abundance, yata lada sampatito, is actually the phrase for doing mudita or sympathetic joy. And have kama as their true property, mawiga chantu kamasaka, is the uh, pervasion or it's the reflection, the rephrase for developing equanimity. The other, those are the other three Brahma-viharas besides metta. So when we do those three phrases, we're actually doing all four Brahma-viharas. And what that phrase about kamasaka, may they have, it's not may they have, but may I recognize that what beings experience, what we as humans and animals as animals and other beings as other beings, what they experience is the result of their previous kama. So sometimes when we see the conditions with which people live, uh, we can feel a lot of love, we can feel a lot of compassion, or we may feel a lot of joy. And we may or may not be able to do anything about those conditions if they're, very, uh, if they're creating a lot of suffering. We can just think of the innumerable places in the world the conditions that people live with, we can feel a lot of compassion and love for those people. We can do what it is we can do. We can uh, contribute, we can organize, we can write letters, we can go and serve for a period of time, etc., etc. However, in doing any of that, we should not disturb our own equanimity, tranquility, and understanding acting from a place where we are imbalanced is not going to bring balance to anyone else. And so sometimes we have to say, "Mm, may these people be happy and temper our enmeshment in their suffering condition by understanding that what they are experiencing is a result of their karma, that that is their true inheritance just as our inheritance and what we experience is a result of our previous action. So it's a balancing. Uh, it's the factor of mind which keeps us from uh, overextending or over-enmeshing ourselves in conditions which we cannot change. So it's recognizing and keeping the mind in a place of balance. Is that chanting tape available? Is, is this tape available? Yeah, the tape, the tape, this tape, this chant has been taped and can be purchased. Yeah. The question is about the sometimes contradictory instructions to 
find a teacher that you resonate with, practice with them to the exclusion, let the other teachers go by. And then there's the other instruction that says, oh, take what you can get from a value from any teacher and use it for your own practice. And the question is about what are the advantages and disadvantages with having one teacher that you're possibly very devoted to and follow for a long period of time, follow their instruction and practice, or having a variety of teachers and taking what resonates from each of them. And she mentioned that she practiced with one teacher for some years. Then when she came here, she got a variety of teachers, essentially all in the Vipassana insight tradition, but still with many seemingly uh, contradictory instructions and guidance. I think, and there's, there's, there's really a lot that could be said about that question, and I'm sure every one of us have had to deal with that or a very similar question. I'll just have to speak from my own experience. When I came to practice, I early on in practice came here to the meditation center, worked on staff, and like you, was exposed to many different teachers. In one sense, it was a little bit confusing because there was a lot of variety in uh, instruction and technique. But I found that I resonated with some more than others. And what I resonated with, I took in and, and practiced. And what I didn't resonate with, I just let go. And later, after 10 years of that, then I went to Burma and practiced with one teacher for five years. And that was a very rich and beneficial period of time. And I think it was only possible that it was so rich and so beneficial because I had had exposure to many different teachers before that. And I can remember a lot when I was in Burma hearing a particular line of teaching over and over again and it being, in the whole spectrum of things, very narrow that I would often reflect on what Christopher had said and Ruth Dennison had said and Joseph and Jack and everybody else I'd heard, along with a lot of the Tibetans, and just as a balance, something to kind of keep me from getting so into a particular culturally influenced uh, technique. And I think in one part that it was because of having those other balancing things that I could go so deeply with one teacher and not feel like I was losing touch with the other uh, ends of the spectrum. And I think for a lot of us, we, we do shop around. But I think if we look carefully at the actual experience or understanding that we have, we will recognize who we resonate most with. And then we might have to take a period of time and practice with them exclusively. It does seem that to go very deep, you do have to stay with one teacher for a period of time and follow that. If 
because there are difficulties on the path, as we know. And if we practice with the teacher until we reach some difficulty that just seems impossible to get through, and we say, well, this teacher isn't doing it for me, and we go to another teacher, we will practice until we hit that same point, run into the same difficulty, and switch again. And we never get through that point. And it may be the place of greatest doubt, the greatest of fear, the greatest uh, energy requirement, whatever it is. And if we keep shopping for teachers, we never get past it. And so in that, at that period of time, we need to stay with one teacher if we can have the trust. If we have the trust and confidence or the devotion to ourselves, that practice and that teaching, we can go through. So that's the benefit of staying with one teacher. The limitation, obviously, is that one teacher or one technique cannot cover the whole spectrum of guidance we need for the whole path and practice and uh, of awakening. Yes, cannot. You know, they're just, uh, uh, just from my own experience, some teachers have uh, great ability to arouse your energy, like Upandita. Other teachers have great ability to arouse your compassion, like the Dalai Lama. Other teachers have great ability to really hone your wisdom factor, whoever is that is for you. And at different times in our practice, in our, the complete spectrum of our opening and developing these uh, faculties of mind and bringing them to maturity, we may hear one teacher's guidance and explanations and, and teaching of the Dharma more. And it may be a different teacher for each of the different faculties. So depending on what you need at that time, you may find yourself drawn to monastic practice in Asia, or you might find, might find yourself drawn to a very uh, non-monastic, open-to-the-world, service-oriented practice. That's not to say that one is better than the other. They're both and everything in between necessary on the path of awakening. And so when we understand that and see from our own experience that we do go through a great variety of needs and techniques and uh, teachings, then we can stop judging ourselves and judging others for having the right path, the right teacher, the right technique, and just say, yeah, uh, this is right for me now, and that is right for you now. And they're completely, they seemingly seem, or apparently are different. Not so. They may be uh, very complementary, but not at the same time. And so there's uh, benefits and limitations for. It can be very confusing if we just shop around and, and get an introductory course from many teachers and read the first level of book or teaching from a number of teachers, frankly, we don't get very far. We get a lot of words, and we can really talk a good line. But that's about as deep as it goes, really. And it's far better, I feel, that when your time is ripe to stay with your teacher, stay with that practice, whatever it is, and any one of them can be the key to profound awakening. 
And it seems from my experience that having, having spent the time with Upandita, which I think was my deepest practice or my most intensely focused uh, practice, that having gone through a, a range of the path of opening and awakening, that it really provides the foundation for and the understanding for understanding every other teaching. But from a place of, this is my experience in this path, and you can see and connect to the parallels of other paths, uh, I think from a place of authenticity, not from a place of, I read it in a book. Briefly, yes. Yeah, I'd just like to comment on that. I've, I've worked with a number of teachers too, but um, looking, looking back on it from where I'm at now, I, I seem to believe that the more the faith or trust in the Dhamma increases um, at a very kind of, not intellectual level, but mm-hmm. a feeling inner level, mm-hmm. the more you are almost intuitively led at different times to go to different teachers. Right. Um, at least that's my experience. And you just yeah. need to kind of trust that. Right. I believe that to be true, too, that as we develop uh, confidence based on our own personal understanding, experience and understanding, that we do uh, connect with or resonate with what we need next most. And it may be different teacher, different technique. But ultimately, I think we come to, and the path of practice is aiming in the direction of becoming your own teacher and having confidence in yourself to awaken in your own practice and, and trusting yourself. But, as you know, that doesn't come easy because there's a lot of places we can get um, confused, uh, judgmental, tripped up. And so teachers can be helpful. But ultimately we have to let go of them too. So it's 9 o'clock, time for interviews, the rest of the day. Enjoy. The question was whether uh, it was the Buddha who said that uh, develop the mind which clings to naught. It's actually found in the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the Mahayana suttas, which came later. Of course, everything from all the traditions are ascribed to the Buddha. <laughs> but it, it is in a later sutta. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, you had said grief, right? Yeah. 
that, yeah. Um, that it's fundamentally the same process, even though the feeling is different. Um, Ideally, and in terms of uh, being able to be with emotions, to feel them in a free way rather than a contracted way, it's to be with them without identification, without claiming them. This belongs to me, this is I, this is mine. The ability to do that, I mean, that's easy to say. The ability to actually do that depends on the degree of acceptance, whether it's anger, whether it's grief, whether it's sorrow, whether it's whatever. If we're not accepting, if we, if we have aversion towards it, you know, or resistance towards feeling it, that very resistance locks it in. Acceptance is a very delicate uh, balance in the mind. On the one hand, we want to be accepting so as not to be pushing away. On the other hand, we want to find that place of acceptance which is not indulgence, you know, which is not getting seduced into it. It's more that sense of the mind, this is okay, let me feel it. Right? So it's very clean, it's very clear. From that place of acceptance, then it becomes easier to see it as a passing state, you know, allowing it to wash through without it getting caught on the hook of self, the hook of I. Um, we have different conditioning around those two emotions, and both generally and also individually. As individuals, we have different conditioning. And so it would be interesting just to see in your experience What are the ways you're relating to the anger, to the grief, vis-a-vis acceptance? You know, are there different attitudes you have in the mind about these emotions that are in some way adding to the simplicity of simply feeling it? It might be, for example, anger is bad, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be feeling it. That would be something extra. Maybe with grief, it's on the other side. Oh, this is really important. I really should get into this. Or the opposite. You know, we all, as I said, we have different, different attitudes that are extra to the simplicity of acceptance. No, he talks the same way about grief, actually. Uh, he said that grief is like a dart. Maybe I'll... There's a whole sutta, actually, on grief. Uh, which It's called the dart. <laughs> because that's what it feels like. It feels like a dart in the heart. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so it, it really is working in the, in the same way. Uh, in terms of being with it, accepting it, the simplicity of acceptance, and then coming to that place of non-identification, of seeing it as arising out of conditions like everything else, there for some time and passing away. It's just difficult. With emotions, it's the thing probably that we personalize the most. You know, and they're not, it's not like a nice, tidy, discreet experience, even like a thought, you know, which is a discrete unit. We can see it come and go. Emotions are much more amorphous. They're powerful. We, we know we're feeling them. But it's more difficult because it's not, it's not as I say, discrete or clearly defined. You know. Sometimes the very power of the emotion can, if we're intent on really noticing how the mind gets caught and how it can be free in the midst of the emotion, the very power of the emotion propels us or uh, into a free state. Because it's... <laughs> It's like keeping us right there. And if we're holding the question in the mind, or holding that awareness, how can I be with this in a way that's not caught? It's a very powerful uh, practice. Is that clear? I mean, so it's eminently workable. And in fact, it can really, the stronger the emotion, the more powerful the mindfulness and practice uh, can become. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last night in Sharon's talk, I thought she said that the realization of anatta was the first realization, and then it's is it then followed by a realization of anicca and dukkha, or am I confused? I don't think she would have said that, but uh, but the three are. First, they're intimately connected. And in some way, you could see them each as a, a quality of the other in a certain way. Our insights into them keep spiraling around through the course of the practice. So sometimes, you know, the impermanence is very predominant. We're just seeing the momentariness, the change of everything. Sometimes the dukkha is very obvious, and sometimes we... The, Anatta, selflessness, is the most subtle of it. Sometimes that presents itself. Also, not only do these cycle around in the course of the unfolding practice, each one of us has a predilection for seeing one or the other. And they're, they're connected with... It's kind of interesting. These, are, these, these three characteristics are said to be the doors to Nibbana that we go through one of these insights, either through impermanence, dukkha, or anatta, that's what opens or illuminates our mind. Anicca is, con- is connected uh, with faith. Dukkha is connected with concentration. Anatta is connected with wisdom. So again, we each have different strengths of mind or you know, things that are uh, more highly developed depending on which door we enter, 
will depend on our particular, uh, we call it mind structure or predilection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, about a couple of weeks ago, you gave a talk where you had the four kind of energies to help one be committed to practice. Mm-hmm. You know, zealousness and effort. And I need to understand the difference between the third and the fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, love of the Dharma and sort of investigation. Maybe one way of understanding the difference is uh, you could think of love of the Dharma almost as uh, a kind of bhakti path. You know, that, that flavor where there's just this tremendous love of the teachings and of the practice. Uh, and nothing, there's nothing which is of greater importance in one's life. The fourth is, the, is that quality of mind that's very investigative. You know, and that's why I use the word, it's philosophical in the highest sense of the word. Where there's just this tremendous interest in understanding. So there could be a bhakti, there could be a great love of the Dharma, with or without this, this very highly investigative mind. You know, that's, that's like a different quality. Um, one night you talked about um, energy and the buildup of energy being be, you know, people are uncomfortable and sometimes, and not to dissipate it, but sometimes it needs balancing. And then yesterday you were talking about um, getting headache and rapture. Wait, I missed the, the thing you said just before. What about energy management? Just, could you tell, talk some more about wise energy management? Wise, uh-huh. What the difference yeah. between, the, you know, some pressure release okay. and balancing? I think that in terms of the buildup of energy and how to manage that, and when it needs balancing, when it's just leaking it, I think a lot has to do with attention, wise attention, to the quality of the effort that we're making in practice. Right effort is a very subtle business. And it's very important. It's, it's an aspect of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha really, he talked a lot about understanding what right effort is. And in some way, I think all of our practice is about understanding right effort. In some way, that's what we're practicing, right effort. So, for example, with the buildup of energy, for me it's been very helpful to see when my mind could really be open to it and simply feel it and be allowing when I was tightening behind it or trying to force it in some way, trying to get rid of it or... So it had more to do, the management of it had more to do with how I was relating rather than with the energy sensation itself. If I was able to be open and soft and just allow myself to feel it, 
then if it was there or it even got stronger, it, w- it was fine. At times when I felt like I was getting tighter behind it, you know, I was just like that, that's when I had to back off a little bit. You follow? So it didn't really have that much to do with the sensation. It had to do with my relationship to it. Uh, there are two. There's one sutta. It's called the. It's called the. In English, it's called the the net of Brahma. Uh, and the Buddha describes. I don't know, fifty-one or sixty-one types of wrong view. <laughs> so, for great detail after the after the retreat, you could look at that. Um, two of the big ones. is the belief that actions don't have consequences and uh, the belief in some kind of permanent self to whom experience happens. That's like the, the two major ones. Uh, then they're further elaborated into the annihilationist view and the eternalist view and you know, it kind of spreads out from there. There's a lot. The Dharma, I mean, it's vast. And that's why at appropriate times for people who are interested, actually studying you know, can really help illuminate the practice. Uh, but not now. <laughs> Develop a practice to be illuminated. <laughs> so... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.